you'd like to open your Bibles, please, at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, from verse 7 to verse 16, the end of the chapter. This is page 670 in our Bibles. Now, the carpenters sang about it. Bob Dylan sang about it. Benny and Bjorn uh, of Abba, their first song together was about it. And when Roy Orbison's wife died, he wrote a song about it. He um, called round to Graceland's to see Elvis, to ask Elvis if Elvis wanted to record it. But Elvis was throwing a party and didn't have time to see Roy Orbison. So Roy Orbison went home and decided to record it himself. And it became his most famous song. Only the lonely know this feeling that I feel. And it struck a chord in many people's lives. And today, with first of all the nuclear family, and now the broken families, we see more than ever the meaning of the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigsby. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? And loneliness is a cancer that eats at people's souls. It is an ogre that fills you with fear and dread. It is a tormentor that destroys your joy and your self-confidence. So men return to their bedsits alone and drink themselves to sleep. And women go to the clubs and offer their bodies to just about anybody because they can't bear the thought of being alone. And children turn to crime just to get attention and join gangs. And sitting in the churches up and down our country today are people lonely in the crowds. They see the young couples holding hands and they go home and cry in jealousy. They see people invited to someone's house for lunch and they cry in despair. It's never them. Wives will start uh, a row with their husband. At least he talks to them, even though he is shouting and sometimes abusing. It's less unbearable than being ignored. And men pay for prostitutes and it can't fill the longing for companionship. God made Adam, put him in paradise where he had an unbroken relationship with God. And God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Even if you are converted and have a wonderful relationship with God, you need a friend. And a dog won't do. As Adam found, none of the animals would do. You need a human friend. Well, last time in Ecclesiastes, we saw that we can't live without God. We need a redeemer. And today, in chapter 4, verses 7 onwards, we see that we can't live without a companion. We need a friend. So we see, first of all, in verses 7 to 8, that the solitary life is pointless. Greta Garbo said in her film, Grand Hotel, I want to be alone. I just want to be alone. 
And she is often portrayed as wanting to be alone herself. She did live as a recluse and wouldn't give interviews or even answer fan mail. But she said, I never said I want to be alone. I only said I want to be let alone. And there is all the difference. Loneliness is not a blessing. It's a curse. Solitary confinement is a double punishment. Now, I've seen some fantastic nurses and carers helping old folks who have been dumped by their families. Life is unbearable on its own for long periods of time. And yet greed, I suppose guilt, often isolates us from others. We build walls around our homes to make them castles, and we work so hard that wives hardly ever see us, and we win the lottery, and now our friends can't relate to us. And like Robbie Williams, these people sit at home counting their millions, listening to him singing for the lonely. Robbie Williams told Mary Byrne, he understood her loneliness. He told her, I feel that every time you're on that stage, you feel lonely like I do. Money doesn't remove loneliness. Every September, October time in Bournemouth, thousands of young people pour into Bournemouth, excited about going to university. Not all of them survive. And many of those who drop out of university do so because of loneliness. But the majority of lonely people in our country are those over 40 years of age. Their parents are no longer around. Their kids have left home. And their partners have divorced them. And life is so lonely for them. We see in verse 8, he, he, he becomes a workaholic. Where's verse 8? Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. He works 12 hours a day, sometimes 16 hours a day, and he doesn't take a day off. He's got to keep himself busy. He doesn't want to retire. Uh, he will work until he drops, which will probably be around the age of 50 for him. He earns more money, buys more clothes, buys a bigger home, a bigger car, a bigger television, and it doesn't satisfy. His eyes are not content with his wealth. And so in the end of verse 8, he knows it's absurd. For whom am I toiling, he asks. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Some people, they burn the candle at both ends to send their children off to public school or to university or to take their wives on holiday or to buy bigger homes for their families. Now, now you might think that's stupid, but at least they know why they're doing it. They may be killing themselves, but they're doing it for others. But this guy, this solitary person, he has no such reasons. For him, it's pointless. 
It's miserable. But he can't stop it. Loneliness drives him to live this pointless life on the uh, treadmill. He can't stop. Life, the solitary life, is pointless. And again, this is where Christianity transforms our lives. Because many Christians have chosen to live a solitary life so that they can serve God better. If you're going to be a missionary in Afghanistan, or in Saudi Arabia, or, or Iran, then you don't get married and take your kids with you. If you're going to be a missionary serving God in that kind of place, then you go on your own. You choose singleness to fulfill your God-given calling. And as Christians, we are complete in Christ. And we can use our singleness to great advantage. You see, Jesus was single and perfect. But Jesus was never a solitary person. Never the loner. So we see, secondly, that we need to have a good friend with us. Verses 9 to 12. Now, our childhood heroes, I don't know who your childhood heroes were, but our childhood heroes often were portrayed as single workers. Batman, Zorro, the Lone Ranger. But they weren't really loners. Batman had his Robin, Zorro his family, and even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. We need people to help us. No one is self-sufficient. No one is omnicompetent. If you're going to start your business, then don't choose all your friends to work with you because your friends will probably be very similar to you. That's why you just click together. You need to choose people who are very different from you. So if you're that bubbly kind of a person, then you've got to find that cool, detached, clinical detail person to team up with and their strengths will compensate you for your weaknesses and your strengths will compensate them for their weaknesses but don't do it alone no one is omnicompetent no one has all the gifts we need helpers a few years ago my alex decided to do up her flat and she bought a wardrobe from ikea when I say she bought it, I think she might have actually paid for it, but we drove there, we collected it, we brought it back, and we had to build it. Now, I don't know if you've ever built a wardrobe with people. Caroline and I, when we were engaged, we bought a wardrobe for our new house, and we almost got divorced before we got married. <laughs> because sometimes it's really difficult to build a wardrobe. And I looked at the instructions that Ikea gave us, and it said, let me read it to you, don't build this on your own. <laughs> Now, the advantage of doing it on your own is that when you get really stressed, you can't take it out on those around you. So I had to send them all out for a couple of hours while I did everything that I could on my own <laughs> and then bring them back in. You see, the disadvantage of doing a job on your own is that, number one, you fail to do it, and number two, it kills you. So don't do it 
on your own. And this is true, not about building wardrobes, but about life. It's true about work, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. It's true about being in danger, verse 10. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. When I was at college, one of my lecturers was Andrew Davis, and he told us when he was a minister in New Zealand that one morning he ran down with his Bible to the riverside to sit there about 6 o'clock in the morning and to read his Bible and pray and meditate and just enjoy the things of God. And he was jumping from boulder to boulder, and he jumped into the sand, and it was sinking sand. He went down below his knees, couldn't get out was struggling, realized he was sinking quicker. So it was waist high, going above his waist, shouting out, is there anybody there? Help, help, <laughs> help, <laughs> help. And then someone walking a dog heard him and was able to get a stick and help pull him out. On your own, pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And, and then thirdly, you're warmer at night too. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Before hot water bottles were invented, it was very hard to get warm at night if you were all on your own. Fourthly, safer from bandits. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. You are less likely to be attacked if someone is with you. This is why if you have to walk home at night, especially if you're a single girl, what do you do? You get out your mobile phone and you ring someone up and you talk to them because you know how vulnerable you are on your own. And even if there's someone who you know, at least has some contact with you, you feel a little bit safer. But fifthly, two friends are even better than one friend. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. When you tie up a parcel, you put string around it, and if the parcel is heavy, the string will break. And so, so you just plait the string, don't you? And a, three, uh, a cord of three strands, it's much stronger. It's not easily broken. It isn't perfect, but it's not quickly broken. And people love to think of uh, marriage, don't they? And of Jesus Christ being the third strand in a marriage. When we had Michael and Rosie's wedding here a few weeks ago, we had this passage read there. They, they like to think of the two of them and Jesus in the middle. And it's a wonderful truth. Jesus is the most wonderful friend to have. And when he's in uh, center of our marriage. It's a much stronger marriage. Solomon is telling us that we need good friends with us. So we need to have a good friend with us, but verses 13 to 16 teach us that we need to have good friends after us as well. Here we move from the family and the great outside to the palace and the seat of government. And here Solomon shows we need successors, good 
successors. If you're going to hand on your family business, you want your son to be wise, don't you? If you're going to hand on the throne, you want your successor to be wise. Now, wisdom doesn't come simply with years. You can start off naive, and you can learn some wisdom, and then you can get stuck in your ways. So, Solomon tells us in verses 13 and 14 that you need a wise successor, and you must pass things on to him before it's too late. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. Now, ministers need to learn this lesson. Many ministers work in a church for too long. They start off well, they build the church up, but then they won't let go, and they hold on to it, and they are unteachable. They know how to do it. They're stuck in their ways, and so they stifle the rest of the church, and they start to tear the church down. It's tragic. Now, when it says here in verse 13 that the king no longer knows how to take warning, it means that he thinks things are okay as they are. No need to change. He's happy with things as they are. No need to adapt. He's unteachable. One of the old retired missionaries at Lansdowne was called Josephine Lund. She had been, as a young lady, a Sunday school teacher for the, you know, little Doreen Irvin and family. Remember Witchcraft to Christ, Doreen Irvin? And you read the story how she went off to Bristol, lived a wild life, but she took the Bible that she'd been given at Sunday school. Well, Josephine Lund had been her Sunday school teacher, and then she went to be a missionary in Indonesia, and then she retired back in Bournemouth again. And she told me that on that particular day, she'd been reading Genesis when Jacob went down to Egypt to be with Joseph. And Jacob, we're told, was Gladys, 120 years old. And Josephine Lund told me that God had revealed something to her that morning. She was in, well into her 80s when she told me this. She said... Old people will say they're too old to change. It's not true. Jacob could change at 120. What they mean is that they're too comfortable and unwilling to change. The king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Well said Solomon, get rid of him and put a wise person in his place. It doesn't matter if he's young Verse 14, the youth, he doesn't matter if he's been in prison. He may have come from prison to the kingship. It doesn't matter if he's been as poor as a church mouse. He may have been born in poverty. <coughs> it's better to have him than an old king who doesn't need, who doesn't see the need to um, keep growing, to keep learning. He thinks he knows it all. He thinks he's arrived. And he's just, he just stifles everything. So you need a wise successor. Then we read in verse 15 that the people loved the successor. I saw that all who lived and worked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. He was on their wavelength. He was a breath of fresh air. That's wonderful. But, verse 16, 
Later generations weren't pleased with him. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The same cycle happened. Yeah, he grew up, he became king, and he held on to his power, and he wasn't going to be moved, and he wasn't going to change, and he just stifled everything again. We need good people with us, and we need good people after us. So let me draw some conclusions. First of all, we need to make good friends. Don't be a loner. Maybe you've been hurt and never want to be hurt again. And so you're unwilling to risk trusting anybody again. Or maybe you're shy. Or maybe you are insecure. Well, recognize these as weaknesses and be determined not to be a loner. Indeed, secondly, mix with good people. Go to the meetings for your own age group. Join a small group. Get involved in a ministry. Be with good people. And here, thirdly, this is important. Don't be demanding. Many lonely people are so desperate for a friend that when someone does come along and shows them friendship, what do you, they do? What do you do? Well, what you do is, is you, you, you try to suck all the friendship out of them you possibly can. You, 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 you want them all the time. You want all their attention. And then you become jealous of other friends that they've got. And you become possessive of them. And you stifle them. And they can't cope with you. And so they stop being your friends. And you get rejected again. Because you are so demanding. And that's not being a friend. That's being a jerk. Now some of you have friends like that, I'm sure. Maybe you have friends who are wrecking your lives. They feel that they own you, and they try to control you, and they demand all your uh, affection. They tell you that you're their best friend. But they're just being manipulative. Manipulative. They're just being controlling. And you have to tell them where to get off. They are not friends. They are manipulators. They are bloodsuckers. They are users. And you have to say to them, I'm sorry, I'm not your friend. We are acquaintances. You have to block their number from your mobile. You must make sure you don't hang out with them socially. You've got to realize that what they are doing and demanding is sinful and wrong. Now, this is tough, isn't it? But this is important. You see, these people aren't helped by you letting them trample all over you. These people need help. They need counselors. These people need to change. They need to repent. And you need to tell them to pretend, to repent. Don't pretend that they're okay as they are. And we must not be demanding like that. We must not 
be manipulative. We must be friends. You need to make good friends, which means don't be demanding. And fourthly, serve. Put yourself out for others. Help them. Go the second mile and ask for nothing in return. Put the other person first. Be a servant, not a bloodsucker. And fifthly, love. Do the loving thing. If we're going to be friends, if we're going to have friends, then we've got to do the loving thing. Now, I'm not talking about sex. Keep sex to marriage. But be kind. Do the loving thing. So he wants to spend Saturday night watching the football on the telly. Well, sit and watch it with him. She wants to watch a chick flick or, or go out for a meal. Do the loving thing. Don't be selfish. Don't say, this is me. If you're going to be my friend, you've got to do everything my way and be just like me. No. <laughs> be flexible. Be loving. And sixthly, last sub-point here is pray for this person. Find out things to pray for about them. And bit by bit, a good, healthy, spiritual friendship will form. You need a good friend, and so you must be good friends. And as the church, we need to show what real friendship is, because there's so many lonely people around. And if we show what real friendship is like, people will say, I want what you've got. Friendship is important. So you need uh, a friend, and Secondly, you need a good successor. So many of us do our work and we never think about who's going to uh, be taking it on in the future. But we need to be training up others. We need to be discipling people, which means we need to be doing one-to-one -one Bible studies with people. We need to train up people to take over our ministries when we've gone. Don't expect them just to miraculously appear out of thin air when we uh, hand uh, in our uh, final work at the ministry we've been doing. Don't expect them suddenly to be able to do it without any training. Don't leave your work to collapse with no successor. We had a very good um, ministry feeding the homeless at Lansdowne. It was run by a lovely, lovely, godly lady, Muriel. She had been an um, alcoholic to destroyed her marriage one of her children had tragically died because of her alcoholism and she found the Lord and she had such a heart for the uh, homeless, the down and outs, the drug addicts that she ran this ministry. And I sometimes would get to Lansdowne six o'clock in the morning, but I never ever got there before she got there. She worked, I don't know whether she slept down there in the garage that they used, but she was so dedicated to the work. But she refused to train others. This was her ministry. She refused to let anyone be her co-worker to learn to do it. Uh, it's tragic because one day she was out at the gate just sweeping around and she had a heart attack and died. And there was no one around to take over the work and it was panic stations all around. And then someone took it and couldn't do it and it all collapsed again. And I, the times I said to her, Let, let's go to the London City Mission and learn what they're doing. Let's learn, train up people. No, she said, no. 
You know, you need people to watch how you do it. And then you watch how they do it. And then they teach someone else. And the good work goes on. We need good friends with us. And we need good friends after us. But still, do you remember the last phrase of this chapter? Verse 16. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Even if you have good friends and good successors, it's not enough. Having good friends and good successors is good. It's not good enough. It's still meaningless. It's just sandcastles on the beach. It's just shepherding the wind. Something massive is still missing. It may be better than the other way, but it's not good enough. Something's missing, and we know what's missing, don't we? Of course we do, because we know the end of the book, and we know the rest of the Bible. We need a friend. We need a friend who is better than any human friend there is. We need God as our friend. We need the great king, the king of heaven to be our friend. We need a friend who's going to be our friend in life, through death, and in eternity. We need Jesus as our friend. We need Jesus as the great friend. And he, he is the one who makes our work profitable. He is the one who lifts us up when we fall down. He is the one who keeps us from the pit of hell. He's the one who warms our hearts when we're cold. He's the one who delivers us from the devil. Indeed, because of Jesus, we can have the triune God as our friend. Abraham was the friend of God. Jesus was born to be our friend. Jesus died to deal with our sin and our condemnation. Jesus rose again to bring us to glory after death. And now he reigns in heaven and works in all things for our good. I remember listening to the old evangelist Gypsy Smith singing, Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the sinner's friend. We don't need to be perfect before we have him as our friend. We need to repent of our sin. And he, our friend, forgives us. Our sin will keep us from him. Our foolishness will keep us from him. So let's turn from our sin and take hold of him as our great friend. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus, be my friend. Be my saviour through life, through death, and through eternity. And let's not merely be a good friend. Let's have the great friend as our friend. What a friend we have in Jesus.